This episode of Talking to Trailblazers is brought to you by Salesforce. In this digital work from anywhere world, Salesforce enables small businesses to create a 360 degree view of their customers, helping them build great customer relationships and supporting their path to growth. Salesforce brings companies and customers together. To learn more, head to salesforce.com forward slash au forward slash small business. Hey, good day there, guys, and welcome to Talking to Trailblazers with Jack Corbett in association with Business News Australia. As we're approaching now the back end of the year of 2020, and with all of the diverse challenges that it's thrown at us as business people, I've got a really exciting person joining me who I feel is at the absolute coalface of supply and manufacturing process in all of the Asia Pacific. Previously named by the Global CEO Excellence Awards in 2019 as the most innovative supply chain management executive, Mr. Paul Eastwood from the Pollen Consulting Group. How are you doing, Paul? Good, thank you. Good, good to hear, matey. And I'm, uh, I've never had the luxury of speaking to you before, Paul, but I'm picking up in the first sentence you said there, you've got to be from the north of the UK with an accent like that. I am, yeah, born in Sheffield in Yorkshire, one of the uh, greatest counties in the world, so say. Yeah, nice. Well, well, if somebody said to me, where's maybe the manufacturing capital of, of the UK, you think of the steel city, don't you? You think of Sheffield as um, being a bit of a heartbeat in the UK in terms of, uh, of manufacturing. Is there, because of where you were born, do you think that played a big part in the, in, you know, the industry that you ultimately now work in? Uh, you know, I, I often look back and wonder that because I think, you know, in the UK, there's a big divide of the North being the manufacturing and the South being the service sector. Yes. And I kind of stumbled into manufacturing after trying the service sector. And I, and I look back and think maybe that's where I was always destined to be because I was always around when I was growing up businesses and, and manufacturing that kind of made things. And I tried going into banking and very quickly realized that I was more interested in how things were made and, and could visualize and see things than I was necessarily how money moved around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I think he probably does actually. Yeah, no, I completely respect that. And in terms of like the rolling the sleeves up, making things, producing things, being innovative as opposed to maybe sitting more in an analytical style role, what was it about that that got your creative juices flowing? <laughs> Do you know, I actually think it's probably the the opposite of that in terms of I really enjoyed the analytical side of things and I really enjoyed understanding what numbers meant. I understand what they meant all the way through to seeing them become something. Mm-hmm. So um, it's probably the, the idea that I can go to the supermarket and I can touch the products and buy them and consume them. And then I can go all the way back through the supply chain to where they were manufactured and all the different stages they went through, all the way to the very beginning when they were a raw material. And I think that's what really got me excited about the idea of being able to understand something end to end. I kind of have a problem when I don't understand something, I keep going until I do. And I think, you know, therefore manufacturing seems like a sensible place because there is a a valid start and a stop. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. And if you were to go, I guess, looking at it politically in, in a, one circumstance and talking more so about, you know, I would listen to people in the UK maybe who were of a certain generation talk about how Margaret Thatcher, uh, you know, they might be a, a real far left socialist, might talk a lot about how, you know, the death of manufacturing um, in the UK. And I understand that 
there's a supply and demand component to what we continue to produce, the raw materials we need to produce the goods that the end user is requesting. But I also think there's a political impact on that based on the governance of each country and how they choose to create the framework for which people can manufacture. So can I ask you, as being somebody who's been in that business in the UK and in Australia, what are the differences between fundamentally how the whole industry is run on that side of the world to this one? My probable answer would be that if you think about the two countries, they actually share a lot in common and they share a lot in common, not only from a, a culture and values, but also probably from a, how they've operated over the, over the years. I think obviously Australia has been in a, in a strong position with its natural resources which has probably driven it to keep some form of manufacturing um, in certain areas where the UK had a significant kind of probably transition out of manufacturing to become a service-led industry for Europe um, and the growth of kind of London because of that. And, and I, you know, you see in certain sectors in Australia that similarity has happened there with the probably, you know, the driving of, of the car manufacturing offshore and, and, and skills being lost from both countries. Um, I think both countries are probably, in, you know, a, a, a large political level. You've got to have both and you've got to have an, an economy that's balanced with manufacturing. And, and, and I think the two people forget that finance, service and manufacturing actually all work together because ultimately the one funds the other to grow. And rather than kind of leading with one, perhaps countries should really think about leading with both. I think, you know, that maybe is what people are starting to recognise both over in the UK and, and a lot over here, particularly on recent times through um, COVID and, you know, it's probably very topical right now. But I think, you know, the things that the government are, are suggesting from uh, what they're trying to do with the economic recovery and to focus on onshoring manufacturing is not only the right thing to do for the economy and for the risk of, you know, supply and demand, but also... It's the right thing to do to probably rebalance where we are. Amazing. So if I if I flipped it and put a bit of pressure on you, then Paul, you are uh, officially the prime minister of this country as of this morning. So congratulations. Um, what are some of the changes or you know stimulus programs that you would put into place with all of your you know consultation experience in this space? What could really get us? back humming quickly off the back of the global pandemic that we've just experienced? Wow, that's a big role for us. <laughs> no, no pressure early on a morning, Matt, with no preparation for the question either um, at all. But yeah, if there were, would there be something you think that's a bit of a standout now that if more time, money and resources were invested in this direction, it would give us a more probable chance of getting back on our feet quicker? Yeah, look, I think there's there's lots that we, and I'll come at this from probably two angles. One's the industry that probably I know the best, which is kind of the food manufacturing and beverage manufacturing industry. And then I'll come at it from a little bit broader on manufacturing in general, um, which is probably where I think the two opportunities sit. And I think if we come at it from a more broader in general, I think we've got to find a way. So if you think we've got to lead on technology, because Australia sits as generally a reasonably high wage cost country and a, a very well developed country, which means when we're looking at cost of manufacture, generally we lose out to other countries that can produce that for a lower cost. 
Now, the only elements that are lower cost are really land, energy, and labor force. So, you know, we don't want to drive the labor price down, but what we do want to do is invest in technology, which means we can make more things with less people and increase productivity. And you do that through advanced technology and advanced manufacturing. So I think that's the first area we've really got to, got to invest in to fix. Mm-hmm. I think energy price has got to be worked on. I'm, I'm not an expert in that area, but it feels like we've, the, the costs are too high and that adds incremental costs. We've got to fix that. Mm-hmm. Land, I don't know how we fix that because ultimately land prices and land prices are driven by demand. So I think you kind of have to take that one out of the equation. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, they're the, from a general manufacturing we're going to win by getting ahead of the market, investing in robotics, investing in advanced manufacturing techniques and funding a way to support that. Now, that's not to me, I'm, you know, that's not meaning handouts, but it is meaning potentially funding the investment to get businesses up and running and using what I feel is quite an innovative country. You know, we, we do, I found setting up pollen, it certainly was an easy, good country. It felt like to be a, an entrepreneur than maybe the UK. There's was, there was more of a encouragement to do it over here, perhaps. Um, so I think from that side, we've really got to encourage that. Um, if we then look probably more into the, what I'd say are the, the industry that's food and, and beverage manufacturing, we can only service locally what we can service locally. And at a point, you know, we the market demand dries up, but that's where we're actually positioned as a country in a, in a really strong place and a really high providence and quality of product to look at how we brand and export that. And obviously, there's been progress made up into places like China and Asia and the developing countries there. I think that needs to be encouraged more and we need to kind of really focus on where the right products can be exported. We focus on, on, on them. I think, you know, there's industries that probably need help to really reinvest and, and, and reinvigorate. I hope that the farms and the dairy industries have had a pretty rough, I mean, I'd say a few years, but I'm sure they'll tell you a few decades. And I think that's another area where we've got a really high quality product and we're able to develop products. And unlike lots of other countries, we've got the land to be able to do that. But we haven't got the pricing right internally in our internal businesses you know trying to put milk on the shelf for a dollar a liter is just not supporting the the largest scale investment and i think the retailers need to it's not necessarily the government it's probably more the retailers need to think about what they're actually trying to encourage in australia um and you know by potentially supporting farmers in in areas where we can push more funds back actually that cycles back around in new and innovation and lower cost eventually in the future, rather than a race to the bottom in price internally. Yeah, absolutely, mate. There's six or seven things you've said there that spiral off into so many different questions I'd, I'd love to ask you. And I think I'd like to address one initially that's like a, a double-edged sword, right? Because I listened to you talk about skills being lost. And I couldn't agree with you more. I think there are certain unfashionable skills for the next generation, whether that be someone, say, like a welder boilermaker that's currently on Australia's skill shortage list for overseas immigrants to come over here and, and be permanent residents, or things like a locksmith, which is not the most, not in a disrespect, but the most difficult technical skill in the world. It takes about four days to get qualified to do it. But 
We just don't have them in this country because it's no longer fashionable. So I feel like that's a potential that we have a skills gap and our unemployment rate is not being caused by a lack of jobs, but a lack of roles that are desirable to the next generation. But can I kind of flip that and then say, you also said the future is robotics and advanced manufacturing techniques. What happens when those lower skilled roles become automated, do you feel, to an economy that now potentially has a pool of people who need to be replaced into a different style of work, potentially? Yeah, I think you're probably right on, on both fronts there. I think, you know, we've got to upskill the current workforce and, and allow them to transition to operating technology. And, and let's be, and this is going to sound probably counterintuitive to what lots of people think it might be, to operate complicated machines is not difficult once you're trained to do it and to understand it perhaps building and creating these machines is, but I think there is equally as many jobs as long as we can use the right way of transitioning people. You know, we can all operate an iPhone. We all learn how to use a computer. I mean, we all know how to use pretty much any app or any new technology somebody puts in front of us when it's presented to the general public. So I think there is a, an ability to upskill in the right way and create roles once we start investing in that advanced manufacturing. Um, for people still to have roles and position. And the idea being is, is we've got to grow the, the output so that then we it matches with the number of people we have available. I think that's, that's the first piece on that one. I think the other one that you kind of covered off there, which, which is probably could bring me back to my start of my career. I went into banking because banking was, in my generation, was a sexy industry. This is before GFC. And when banking used to be not counting, you know, when we were kids, it was a very simple industry. When we kind of got to out of university, it became the, the bee's knees of the place to be. Um, and I think we've got to get manufacturing to be that place. We've got to get people who are coming through universities to realise that actually it is really exciting and it is sexy and it is the thing you want to tell your friends about. You know, I know that I really enjoy talking to friends and family and about how things are made. And I think, you know, we've got to encourage people that that's actually the fun side of the world. And the financial side is actually, you know, it's just a support function for an economic output, maybe. And, and positioning that a little bit more and investing in that side, I think is important. Um, and I do think, you know, without being, the best way that we can get there as a country is potentially by bringing onshore skills and making it attractive for um, talent to come to Australia. Um, I mean, that's probably my view being a, an immigrant into Australia myself, I suppose. Um, but I do feel that if we're going to do this, it's a great country to live in. There's so many great things that we should be encouraging talent to come here to set up and develop because it, it has the capability to be the sandbox for the world. Amazing. And if you were to go and talk, I, I agree with you, coming from the UK, whether that is an immigrant mentality, but, you know, it's something about the opportunities that this country creates, that you want to, you know, every friend, every family member, every person you meet, you say, you know, you've got to think about coming to Australia, or you've got to think about setting up a business in Australia. So double back on a comment you made, you said you felt like the Australia was more kind of accommodating or encouraging to entrepreneurs 
small to medium-sized business owners than maybe the British government. Could you give me a practical example of that? Yeah, so probably I was actually talking more, not necessarily government, more probably around the environment in the industry. So I, I think when I talked to people in Australia and said I was going to set up Pollen, there was a real natural encouragement from people in the industry, in the sector, um, and a real, you know, give it a go. Um, what's, you know, what's the worst that could happen? Whereas when I kind of talked back to people in the UK, it was more of, oh, that sounds risky, you know, and I'm not sure if that's just the, the people that were around me in each of the countries or if that's an, a more natural instinct of, of, the, of the two cultures. And I think in, in, I, I generally think it probably is a bit of a difference in the two cultures. Yeah. Certainly in the non-tech space, I think tech around the world, as everyone who's in the world of tech is willing to accept that there are times when you fail and it's okay and you can get on with it. I think that mentality is transis- transitionable to lots of other um, areas of business and people wanting to try their own thing. And I just feel that Australia felt naturally easier with people around you to give you a go and when you phone people up and tell them that you're a new business yes generally make time for you yeah I completely agree with you and haven't had that same experience I think the small minded uh, fear based mindset um, that I experienced also when, when looking at starting businesses in the UK if I was to flip into talking about your business obviously a couple of bits of my research if I kind of grabbed a tagline it's that Pollen Consulting Group is a consultancy that works to create value for clients throughout the manufacturing and supply chain industry so basically if you could give me the, the elevator conversation if you will or the water cooler conversation how do you add value to your customers and how do you ultimately help them to grow their businesses? Yeah, so I think if I was to give you the, the very um, elevator pitch and exactly what we do, we say we're the go-to people for the COO of a business. So if um, the person running the supply chain operation needs some extra horsepower to get some work and projects done or to get change moving in their business, or a different set of eyes to think differently about their supply chain or their operation. They'll come to us and we'll work with them all the way from the ideas all the way through to implementing it and making it real and making it happen to the point that it's delivering value to their PL. Yeah. It's um and in terms of that word change where you're talking about where quite often businesses are going through a transitional period and are looking to accelerate the speed with which they're able to see the upturn from the changes that they've made. And I know we brought in a, I guess, a change coach, if you will, a a Lean Sigma um, agile coach from the UK, from a company called KM&T. And um, we were talking about change enthusiasm and change resistance. So for you helping others that are listening right now, who maybe are about to go through a process of change, how do they identify the people within their business that might be, you know, more change resistant or those that might be more change inherent and how do you go about getting the team to move as one um you know in the direction of the change that has now been placed within our operation yes i think change is a is a a huge subject in itself about how you manage it and how you lead it through an organization i think the the you've almost we always talk to businesses in terms of identifying people 
it's very difficult to do because until you start the change process, you perhaps don't know what people are going to come on at what pace and what speed. But all you do know is you'll have the early adopters. You know, it's a very similar, you know, it's a bit like the technology curve, the change curve. You've got the early adopters. You've then got kind of the people that will follow doing what they're, they're told to do. You've got the resistors, and then you've got the people who are probably disruptive um, for whatever reason that may be. And, and you've got to really unpackage each one of them individually. And what we always find, the way that change works is, is change can't be led from the top of an organisation only. You've actually got to lead change through all the different levels in your business. Um, and you've got to find some, let's call them change agents, but people that are going to champion change, but they're not going to champion it from the people that are running a million miles ahead of everybody else. They're the people that are sat within the business, that sat alongside everybody else, that really understand what needs to happen and can work with them people and invest time because, you know, change takes time and you've got to realise people work at very different paces of adopting to change mm-hmm. and that's not a, a problem. You can't then look and go, this isn't working, these people aren't changing, if they're just taking longer than other people to adopt, you've got to work with them and understand the reasoning why and bring them on a journey with you. I think the, the, the advice would always be is run at the pace that your entire organisation can run at. Yes. Um, not at a pace that maybe your change agents can run at. Yeah. Um, is, that, is that pace that the business runs at determined by the highest operational standard or the lowest operational standard. You know, the old saying, you know, we're only as strong as our weakest link. So if we, if by default, the the change itself is moving ahead of the slowest individual, do we, do we by default leave that person behind? Are we slowing down our upper quartile or is it a case of trying to create as much of a median or standard as possible? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's as much as, understanding why change is, is potentially slow mm-hmm. in certain areas and working on how you speed that part of the change cycle up so that then you bring yourself up to a more of a median and, and you're not waiting for the slowest people, but you are working on making the slowest people faster faster, and the fastest people maybe making them understand that they can't pioneer and run ahead of everybody else, they need to stay with the pack. Although they need to be setting the tempo occasionally. And there's nothing wrong with occasionally pioneering off and doing something as long as it's known that that's what they're doing. I think that's sometimes where people get lost. Um, There's nothing wrong with letting a team of, a small team within your business run off into the distant future. As long as they know that they are running into the distant future and the cavalry will be a long way behind them. Uh, because you might find a new direction. Um, so you've still got to allow it, but you've almost got to keep control of the mean, I think is the biggest part there. And also working on how once, how you can potentially work with your organisation to make it leaner and quicker for change, to make people, not make people, that's probably the wrong word in this term, and how you can get your organisation to be more change efficient so that the next time you go through change, you're ready to evolve and respond quickly. And, and, you know, we talk a lot around the responsiveness as an organization. And I think, you know, 
old organizational structures with lots of levels and hierarchies are often the slowest to change. Although the, their theory would be they're the fastest because it's a command and control and they just, they just push down a, a message and that works. Whereas actually what you find is that the organizations that can change quicker are the ones that are the more agile, flatter organizational structures because everybody's connected into the core. So talk, talk into that then, the, the old, how has a manager changed from 1980 to 2020? How has the typical role of what would be titled, call them the shift manager, in what you would say is an effective and efficiently operating business under you know, the, the pollen methods, if you will? Um, what's the difference between the 1980s and the 2020 successful manager? Oh, I think there's probably two ways of answering that. I, I know that I'll probably, are you talking about within operations and supply chain? Or are you talking about within wide core pollen? I, I guess let, let, let's, let's center it operationally and around the manufacturing and supply chain. But I guess in, in its entirety, right, I feel like the, the transition of managers becoming true leaders of people, you know, being more... I guess, a captain of a team as opposed to the finger wagger, if you will, just a little bit into that idea for some people, because I know many of our listeners made our um, owner operators, they might have under three staff as an example, but they're all, their ambition is to get to where you are, you know, and have uh, huge teams. But, uh, you know, as you know, every huge team needs a great leader. So yeah, how do you think those characteristics have evolved? And, and maybe if I summarize the question a different way, what are the key characteristics to a great leader in 2020? Yeah, I think, you know, it's really clear of empowerment. I think, you know, historically, the old manager command control was you do this, come back, tell me when it's done, you do that, come back, tell me when it's done, give me this, give me that, um, which is, you know, <laughs> You can relate it back to the whole, you know, the whole metaphor of give a man a fish, you know, give a man a rod and, and that kind. But I, I do think that is the difference in where management used to be and where management is. Um, one is that empowerment of your team and your trust of your team, because if you've got a team you can trust and that are empowered to make their own decisions within a framework, but know when to ask for help and know when to get on and do things. And setting them boundaries is, is different to each person and is different to each organization. And that's going to come down to the risk level that the business is willing to take. And also from a, probably from a point of view of the risk level that should be taken based on what that person is actually doing for a job. Um, and I think, you know, understanding that in your business, understanding how you can put more of the empowerment to people is critical to the future leaders. I also think, you know, the move from management to leadership, uh, I always get confused by that term um, in my world because I don't understand why everybody isn't a leader and there isn't a thing, such a thing as a manager. Um, a manager seems to me like it's become a word and in my definition for a second-rate leader. Um, and maybe that's me being overcritical of the word, but I do think we're looking for leaders and people. People have moved on from a job being a job that they do to um, fund other things in their lives. I think there's a lot more of the development of people 
see a job as part of their engagement and enjoyment in life. And, you know, they don't want to do a job where they are not engaged and don't enjoy it. And, you know, you get a lot more out of people when they're connected to their organisation. Um, and therefore, you know, people have got a lot more choices well on what they go and do. So I think they are the important pieces of being a leader. Yeah. And I think one thing I've seen you do, again, just through proximity of being able to observe your business, is you seem to be really big on giving your team a voice, you know, making sure every single opinion is heard. And, you know, a lot of people will do their continuous cycles of improvement, you know, and the plan, do, check, act, or the plan, do, check, standardize type of stuff. Um, but how important do you feel that is? And for anybody who maybe is, is feeling like, not by intent, but by accident, their business has become a bit more of a dictatorship or a bit of a totalitarian leadership style where everybody just looks to you as the leader to tell them what to do, therefore minimizing their ability to think for themselves or be innovative in any way. Um, do you have any feedback for us on sort of timeframes we would do that? Any cool little exercises we might go through that get people talking and get people opening up? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a couple of things, people, that become that. And occasionally, you know, as a as an entrepreneur and as a highly energized person, I, I occasionally have the ability to to try and run my own way and, and forget about um people sometimes and, and the, the secret is is to remind yourself sometimes when you do that and generally remind yourself of the results you got versus the results you got when you worked with the team um, and also probably the enjoyment you got out of it because um, when you're working with people it's a lot more fun and when you're seeing other people develop it's a lot more rewarding but I think you know there's, there's probably a couple of things that we do and we take on board and I think you that for other people are really simple tips. One is to just understand that you need to set where you want people to get to and the the goal that you're setting them, not the path you want them to take, um, or that it needs to be prescribed. People finding their own way through things is the kind of our approach in business and it's the way that we finally get they get the best development and we get the best results. Now, a lot of the time that might not mean they do it the way that I'd have done it, but I'm only there to guide them and maybe help them understand and, and get there. And I think the other one is accept that failure is okay. Getting things wrong and learning from it is perfectly normal because you as an entrepreneur and me as an entrepreneur, I do it a lot. And I can't set an expectation that I'm allowed to fail and get things wrong. And then, but my team must follow the way I say to do it. So I protect them from not failing. Occasionally, you've got to let people learn through their own mistakes and create an environment where the, the risk of what they're going to do is not a risk to the business or your, um, or your client base or, or anything, but it's just a risk potentially on maybe a little bit more work or having to kind of cast something back up with them, but giving people space and giving them an environment where getting things wrong occasionally is, is okay is probably the, the secret um, and not um, treating that as a, as a problem, almost addressing a, a fail, learn as an as a exciting thing in your business to have happened. Yeah, well, 
So if, if we take that attitude that fail plus learn actually equals win, then we can turn our worst day into our best day almost instantaneously, right? Because I think it's funny that we treat our children and, and it, mistakes are okay. We say that's how they learn. Of course he fell off his bike. Of course he doesn't know how to swim. He needs his, his floaties on, whatever it might be. But the second come, somebody comes into a job, we say it's not okay to make mistakes. And if there's one thing I know is you watch any teenage child that isn't supposed to be doing something and then they did it, they'll hide it. And once you've hidden one thing, you've got to start covering those things up. And I'm sure what you're trying to explain in a business is if we have a, f- a f- culture and a philosophy where mistakes are celebrated, nobody will feel the need to hide anything. Therefore, meaning we can address the problem at source, not once it's become unaddressable 12 or 18 months later when somebody's been burying or hiding it out of fear for the reprimand of doing so. Is that, am I summarizing that right? No, I think um, I need to press record and replay what you just said because that's a lot more fluid than what I explained. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just um, I'm listening to what you're saying. And I guess so, I, the benefit of me doing this podcast is I get to learn also from fantastic people like yourself. And yeah, that's kind of what I was hearing you saying. And it just makes so much sense. I mean, the one thing I've learned in the last five years of running part is I have made more mistakes than I have ever made in my career previous to that. I've only made mistakes often because I've been trying to push boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we've probably, I've done, and as a team, we, in consultancy, you kind of, this is saying that you do, there's always a one in 10 year great project that you always remember. And that's kind of something that if you talk to lots of consultancy businesses, everyone will remember that project they did at some point in the last decade that they were really proud of and they kind of stand there and say, that's, that was the, the epitome of what makes consultancy and, and, and they'll refer back to that for a long time until the next one. Uh, I look back on the five years we've had in, in pollen and I can probably name 10 of them. And, and that's not me trying to brag about the, the quality of the work we do, but it's me because we've been willing to push boundaries and because we've been willing to take things on and we pushed ourselves beyond what we thought we were capable of as a team. We've got a lot more of them and a lot of our team have got them where they've done things that we just wouldn't have done in a, in a previous life because we have the confidence and belief in each other. Yeah. Yeah. And in your team, how many of you are there in total? There's 25 of us in the business as of today, although that might be 26. We had a new recruit and I can't remember if they were number 25 or 26 yesterday. <laughs> no problems at all. Because I guess one of the biggest challenges that COVID's presented to most of us is, is where we're working from. Um, most people have gone to some level of remote working, whether that was partially or fully. Um, talk to me a little bit about how your team went about that. And, and I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, you've actually developed a new application that you're using internally now. Can you speak into that a little bit for me? Uh, in terms of probably, you know, COVID has not been fantastic for a consultancy business that services the entirety of Australia, but has all of its people in Sydney and works in manufacturing inside plants. So it's been uh, it's been reasonably challenging um, for, for us as a business and industry. But what we have had is because we've got some really great clients, um, clients have generally worked with us to understand how we carry on supporting them because also they've had lots of challenges and need help. So from that side, we, we've we've had to adopt quickly from a technology point of view. We we've got a we're in a lucky position that we had a reasonably 
large footprint of office so we could keep the office open and down to minimum people and, and our team are very very personable in terms of wanting to spend time together to brainstorm ideas so we, we've managed to keep apart from the first few months we've kept a, a a footprint open that people can use if they want to and if they'd like to because we still think that personal piece is important but we had to adopt a technology with clients We've had to adopt a different way of doing things with clients, whether that be, you know, using Google goggles or, you know, virtual glasses to be able to go around and walk around with their factory with them. Um, so really a lot of what we've done is adopted technology that helps us do our job better. Um, teams, whiteboards online, all, all the apps that are, seem to be coming out. Someone in our business seems to adopt, test, learn, decide if it's going to add value or not very quickly. Um, which is which has been great for us. I think the one that we we really spent a lot of time on is where we had a product. We we had a a lean training product where we would uh, train people in a in a in a qualification of lean, um, specifically for um, food and beverage manufacturing businesses, and we delivered that through classroom training and a little bit of online training. We've actually had to redevelop that entire course and and module and, and delivery methodology. To be able to carry on delivering that with a, a number of clients on a virtual platform, um, so that's probably where we've we've invested in in the development of that side of things. Yeah. Okay. That's um. I guess obviously none of us could see it coming, right? Like we didn't know COVID was on the horizon, but I guess the benefit is that some of those changes were possibly in your development plan anyway, and you just had to accelerate them and and just do them a little bit ahead of schedule because they were now a necessity, right? Uh, I'd actually probably say, you know, we, we've always believed in technology and we've always been thinking about technology for our clients and for the industry. We probably got caught out internally and we, we didn't have lots of the things that we had to respond to quickly and we hadn't really thought about them. And I guess there's lots of business out there that are probably the same. It's now opened up a new world to us that have helped us learn and do things quicker. And I think there's, there's some incredibly good things coming out of this that are going to allow us to be more efficient with clients, more, more efficient with our own team as well. And not all of it's just technology based. Some of it's just adapting to the new world. So, you know, I'll give you a great example. And I used to, if we had a new client ring us up from Melbourne and wanted to talk to us about work and it was Monday, I'd consciously make an effort if they wanted to, to go to Melbourne, to meet them in person, to show them how, you know, engaged we were in their business and how much we were willing to go to, to, to work with them. And therefore I could my entire next day getting on two air, on an airplane there, an airplane back just for one I'm meeting and I'm becoming hugely inefficient. I think clients have realized and people, you don't need to do that to do the same effort to show the same things. So I think, you know, from that side, there's the air miles and, and time that we're going to save from an efficiency side. From our clients, we don't need to always be on our client's site to do really good work. And our clients kind of see that. So they don't expect to see somebody to see a, a bill for a day's work. And, and that all of that put together makes our team more efficient because they can spend more time on client things rather than less. And they're a lot more energized because they only travel when they really need to travel and can add value. So I think we're, we're adopting as much from the technology side as we are from the, 
ways of doing business side and the we've always been a reasonably flexible business on where you work from where you work from home the hours you work all of that side is we empower the team to do whatever they want yes. to get the job done but i think we're learning and they're learning to push the boundaries on that because i don't think people were willing to although there wasn't ever an expectation in the business then naturally becomes an expectation by following what other people do and i think people have realize that they don't need to do that. And I think I'm hoping some of these cultural changes not only stay with us, but stay with the the culture of the country and in the world, really. Yeah. I um I, I hope it leaves some some great legacy in behind it. And um and just like it has done there with you, we just human beings and good business owners just find a way to adapt. Doesn't matter what scenario you throw us into. It's okay, great. These are the, the the cards I've been dealt. I must play this hand to the best of my ability now, moving forward. So, Matt, I've um, I've only got two more questions I want to quickly ask you. The first one, I don't want to talk into client names for obvious reasons because I don't want to disrespect in this question I'm about to ask. But because you work across so many different sort of industries or sectors of manufacturing. Looking at sort of March to September, the six months that have gone of 2020, in your opinion, which industries have been the big winners and which industries have been the big losers? I guess, you know, we, we can define that on a financial basis and we can quite simply look and say anyone who didn't have a retail shop front or in hospitality or any form of industry that's been impacted being the biggest losers and therefore anybody that services that side. And then we can look and say there's the, the biggest winners, the, the retailers um, and, and anybody manufacturing locally. I think you've got to look beyond that. And I think you've got to look at the businesses that have been changed for the better through this for the longer term. Um, you know, I certainly think there are a number of businesses that were really at the forefront of what they were doing, but were probably not getting the volume and drive to scale and they've had acceleration. So let's think about um, the meal kit delivery businesses, the the direct to consumer businesses that bypass the retailers. And I, and I, that's a sector that, although I do work with a number of the retailers, so we can't necessarily be too critical of them. Um, I do think the competition from the retailers needs to come from not another retailer, but from alternative routes to customers. So on all that side, I think that's an industry that's going to grow and um, and is really benefiting from, from where we've gone through. The other side of that is everybody that is already thinking about online and restructuring their supply chains. Um, I don't think retail's dead. I think retail's changing and I don't think stores are dead. I think they're changing. I think what the the people that will win from this will will be not in the same industries and not even in the industries that are doing really well now or do doing really poorly now. It's the ones that will use this time and invest in this time to change. I think somebody told me a stat and I don't know where it came from. So it'll be a stat that's unquoted, but it was something around um only one in 14 businesses choose to invest during a, a, a downturn. And, and then the opposite side of the fact was one in 12 businesses that invest during a downturn end up being um, over twice as successful as their competitors in the market. Wow. And, and, and I don't know the, 
exactly into that, so that but that resonated with me and, and it exactly okay. that was well. being able to anyone can invest in their growing business it's investing in your business that's staring down the barrel um and having the confidence to invest in the right areas of the business that that takes a, a big set of kahunas you know and i mean obviously metaphorically with many many of the great entrepreneurs in this country being females as well but it's um yeah it takes some guts to be able to keep investing in your business during what feels like its darkest hour. For sure. Yeah, and I, and I think that's what, that comes back to the culture and we've got to overcome that because I'm sure if you look at all the technology businesses that have succeeded and become dominating the world, they all had that period. And that darkest hour might not have been a, a macro level, it might have been a micro level to them, but they all kept going through it. And I always think, if you genuinely believe in what you're trying to do and you've set up a business as an entrepreneur and you back yourself on a change and you back yourself in a direction and you've got a team behind you that you believe in, you'll make it work. It's, yeah. Sometimes it's not necessarily getting the decision perfect. It's having the commitment behind it to see it through that's, that's more important. Um, you know, as the, the, the other saying I really love in business is good today is better than great never. Um, and it's that just sometimes just get on and do it and you'll find a way of making it work, even if you have to change part way through because you're committed to it. Yeah, no, I completely understand that. And if I was to ask them my final question for today, I was really impressed by hearing that you've developed, I guess, an, an instant response or a rapid response service um, that's been developed during COVID to assist businesses that are really in a bit of a crisis mode. So what I'd like to know, two parts to my question. One is if there is anybody listening to this that considers themselves to be in crisis mode and feels having a consultant of your nature come in, you know, assist them with, with change, create a more lean operation and get them back scaling in the right direction. How do they go about making contact with you? And second part to that would be, you know, if somebody was in the crisis and you dove in the trenches with them, what would be the first two or three things that you might typically address with a business? And then uh, I might let you go for today, mate, if that's all right. Yeah, perfect. I'll probably just answer that question in, in a couple of phases. One, um, as I said, if you want to get all of us, website, telephone number, LinkedIn, we'll respond to anything. You can get a message to us, smoke signals. Um, we keep our eye out for. Um, but I think if in terms of, you know, the rapid response we launched was not all about crisis as much as it was as well about opportunity. The idea was that businesses are going through a huge amount of things happening in their business right now. Some good, some bad, something different. And the idea was, was rather than let's be going backwards and forwards and consultancy agreements and, and, and scope of work when you just needed somebody there to work with you in your business, the idea was, was we could start a project tomorrow we'd shape it up with you as we go and we'd, we'd be able to turn that on to support. That was the idea on, on where we, we came at that from and I think that's resonated well in the market where we're not becoming a consultant, we're almost taking a role of an extra resource in the business. In terms of where we'd look and start from, there's, there's probably more important question, where does the person who's invited us to talk about their business, where did they see the problem or opportunity and what do they need? Because I think it can be you can be very arrogant going into a business and saying that you can fix that business. 
and you can help them without really understanding what they're trying to do and ultimately supporting them on their delivery. Now, some businesses might come and say, we don't know, or we just need someone to give us a, a view. And on that, we, we very much just start from, from the top and from the bottom of their business and, and work through it and understand where the opportunities might be. Whereas where we get the best value is where we're working with a client who says, can you help me on this problem? And they give us a problem and we go, yes, we can. Um, or, you know, and, and we, we have a bit of a saying that we want to do the things that clients find impossible or hard because they're the things that get us out of bed. Um, so kind of listening to them and their problems and then unpicking a solution. We don't like rolling up with a methodology. We're not a traditional consultancy business that turns up and says, you'll follow the McKinsey way and it'll be this step, that step, that step. That's not us. We turn up and say, right, what's happening? What's up? What's going on? How do we help? You know, where are the areas? What about this? What about that? And we'll work with them. And if there's, I guess, go back to what you said about being a good leader is if you're going to, if you're going to leave legacy of good change that is impactful, it needs to be both decided and then driven by the person who invited you in, not by you guys. Because otherwise, when you leave, all of that enthusiasm, all of that change, all of that benefit leaves with you. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've done... uh, I think we've done about 82, 83 projects over the last four years of our history and not once has it ever been called a pollen project. It's always been the client's project and we're there to help them because ultimately that's how you drive change. Change isn't driven by a consultancy business. That's not how you deliver it. Absolutely love it, mate. Well, look, three quarters of the way through what must have been the most, definitely the most unique year since 2008, but possibly one of the most unique years in this generation's lifetime. Um, Thank you for your kindness and openness to share uh, some insights and some wisdom with us. And um, and I hope that as a an import to this country um, with whom has so much fondness for the opportunity it's created that we don't experience any of that tall poppy syndrome. And as you continue to bulldoze your way through to being one of the most recognized CEOs globally in your space, I, um, I hope the Australian community can get well behind you and um, you know we can, we can share in that success story with you. Matt, thank you. I really appreciate it. Really enjoyed the conversation, and I think you've managed to uh, cut down often what I've said into some great summaries. So, <laughs> wonderful. So, thank you so much for your time. God bless you, mate. We'll speak to you again soon. Yeah, cheers, buddy. Take care, bud. All the best. Bye now. This episode of Talking to Trailblazers is brought to you by Salesforce. In this digital, work-from-anywhere world, Salesforce enables small businesses to create a 360-degree view of their customers, helping them build great customer relationships and supporting their path to growth. Salesforce brings companies and customers together. To learn more, head to salesforce.com forward slash au forward slash small business.